Dear congregation, you remember back when we were preaching on the book of Genesis, and we, we came in Genesis 3, verse 15, to that uh, so important text, that all-important text, that God said he would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And all throughout the scripture, right, we see that enmity, that opposition being played out in the history of God's people. That wherever, and I put that saying there on the outline, wherever the Lord builds his church, there the devil builds his chapel. Wherever the Lord is, is advancing, the work of God is going forward, there you can be sure that the devil will come with his energies, with his men, with those who are loyal to him, and they will try to oppose it. That is the antithesis that we spoke about so many times in past messages. That there is always this opposition between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The very sad thing this morning, dear friends, is that the seed of the serpent this time is allied with those who claim to be the very who claim to be standing for the truth of God. The opposition comes not from the Romans, from the Gentiles, from the Greeks, or from any pagan source. It comes from the leaders of the people of God at this time, the establishment. So when I come to my first point here, who, in other words, who are opposing the work of the apostles in this story that we have before us? Well, we read in verse 1 who they are, the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. Now, the priests. You know that in the, pre, uh, in the Old Testament already, God had established priests who were responsible for ruling, uh, who had charge of the religious affairs of the people. Right? There was a prophet, there was priest, and there were king. In fact, there were priests long before there were prophets. And the priests had the responsibility. They had kind of a twin, twofold responsibility, right? It was to offer up the sacrifices, right? People would bring their sacrifices to the temple, to the tabernacle. And the priests had the responsibility of slaying that sacrifice, preparing it, killing it, and administering that sacrifice in, a, in keeping with the rules that God had established. So the priests offered up to God the sacrifices that the people brought. Now they also offered up to God prayers. That's why I said that priests had kind of a twofold responsibility of atonement, right, offering up the sacrifices that God made. But priests also had the responsibility of intercession, of prayer. And you'll remember that the priests would light incense, right, which was kind of a picture of the prayers of God's people ascending up to God himself. And I always like to point out that the, the priests are really the opposite of the prophets, right? The priests, everything goes this way, right, from the people to God. But with the prophets, they have a message from God, and they deliver it to the people. So the priests kind of go up, but the prophets have a word from God that comes down. That's kind of an easy way to keep that distinction in your mind between the prophets and the priests. And then the kings, of course, had a civil office, right? They were in charge of the civil sphere. At any rate, these priests then, from the tribe of Levi, they were the authority in religious matters. You understand that? They were the ones who had the responsibility of teaching the people, of, of administering all the temple rituals. They were the authorities. They were the experts, you might say, in that regard. And they're upset when they see Peter and John. And no doubt, there is 
within the opposition that the priests have to the preaching of Peter and John, uh, something of what we see uh, in verse 13. Turn with me to verse 13 of our chapter. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. There's always something in the, in the, in the minds of, of people who are the establishment, right? That these people who haven't passed through our course of training and education somehow aren't uh, accredited or credentialed in the proper way. And therefore, we have to reject their teaching. I think there's some, some uh, tension there, isn't there? Some opposition just based on that fact, that Peter and John don't have any credentials to be preaching the word of God. And yet there they are, preaching with boldness. So the priests, they're not happy with the preaching of Peter and John. But you also have the captain of the temple guard in verse 1. Now this man would have been a man of very great authority. He also would have been a Levite. And he would have had charge of just keeping order in the temple. You understand, uh, friends, that the temple was a very busy place. First of all, it was a massive place. Uh, if, you can, if you can go somewhere and find pictures or diagrams of Herod's temple, the size of this, uh, of this uh, building, and you can't really call it a building, it's really more like a campus. Uh, it's just huge with its outer court and its inner court. And, and then the temple proper, the building itself, is a massive place. Well, especially during the times of the feast days, this, this building, this whole campus, again, would have just been flooded with people. So the temple guard had the responsibility of keeping order in the temple. Well, now when you have Peter and John standing here subverting the very uh, religion which is centered in that temple, they're preaching the name of Jesus. But the Jewish religion rejects the name of Jesus. The temple guard has a role to play here, doesn't he? These men need to be brought under control because they're stirring up trouble. So the captain, the captain of the temple guard, and no doubt when the priest went to check out what Peter and John were doing, they took with them the temple guard to make sure that, that order was preserved. So the captain of the temple guard. Then the Sadducees. Now the Sadducees were kind of the, the higher class people. They were kind of the, uh, we, were, we might call them the elitist. They were, uh, they, they were much more cozy with the Roman uh, people, with the Roman uh, uh, overlords, you might say, right? The Roman governors and, and the Roman establishment there. They were much more cozy with them. Than most of the Jews hated the Romans. But the Sadducees had kind of a friendly relation with the Romans. They kind of were much more for working together with the Romans. They were from the higher classes, but they also prided themselves on being uh, a very, very uh, highly educated. And the Sadducees, as you know, were also something of what we would today call rationalists, right? Rationalists. They, they didn't believe things that they couldn't grasp with their own mind. And so naturally, the, the Sadducees had no use for miracles. The Sadducees did not believe in miracles. And naturally, they would not have accepted the resurrection of the dead. So when you have Peter and John preaching the resurrection, that's going to be a problem with the Sadducees. The Sadducees do not like that. So the Sadducees also have a stake in going forth to find out what are these two guys preaching, and, and we want to make sure that this doctrine of the resurrection is not something preached if we're in charge. 
There was actually considerable tension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees on this point. Let me move to the, to the charge in the second place. Now, as I just said, the Pharisees believed in a general resurrection. They believed that at the end of time, people were going to rise from the dead. But they certainly, well, look with me at this verse, right? At verse 2. They're greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming, and then you just have two words there, right? In Jesus. In Jesus. See, the Pharisees believe in a resurrection of the dead, but not in Jesus. That's a problem for the Pharisees. The apostles are preaching that in Jesus, in other words, when we are joined in a saving union with Jesus Christ by faith, by the work of the Spirit of God, when we are brought into that union with Jesus, Peter and John say that now you can have the assurance that you are going to rise from the dead. Now, of course, the Pharisees can't have that. And so this is the charge that they bring. You're preaching a general resurrection. No problem there. But you're preaching that it's in the name of Jesus. And that's where the problem is with the Pharisees. They can't have that. Now, the Sadducees, of course, their charge is, we don't believe in the resurrection at all. But as I put on the outline there, there's a huge problem. And, and you kind of have to almost chuckle a little bit, right? When you, when you think about this. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, and anybody who's going to bring a charge against Peter and John, have this huge problem. There stands right before them this man who had been healed. They recognized him. They knew that this man was the lame man who stood at the gate of beautiful in front of the temple. And now he was standing on two perfectly good legs. And before that, they had seen him jumping and leaping in the temple because he was so uh, thrilled that he had received his ability to walk again. Now, my friends, that's not an argument you can refute. Because the apostles had made it clear, and there were many eyewitnesses, that this man had been healed in the name of Jesus. That's a huge problem. The Sadducees don't believe in a miracle. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And yet standing before them is a walking miracle. It's kind of hard to deal with that, isn't it? Now, my friends, as I, I said before, that whenever, we're going to find this repeatedly in the book of Acts, whenever the resurrection of Jesus is preached, or the resurrection of the dead, that is always going to stir up trouble. That is always going to be a problem. That is always going to be, to use a kind of a contemporary term, a trigger for the people that are hearing. And that when they hear that, they blow up, right? They just, they, they don't want ever to hear. They don't believe it. Many of them don't want to believe it. And, and the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of believers, is always a problem. Why is it a problem? Why is the preaching of the resurrection a problem? Because, my friends, when you preach the resurrection, you're preaching the lordship of Christ. To say that Jesus rose from the dead is the equivalent of saying Jesus is Lord. Nobody can miss the connection between those two. That when a person confesses that Jesus rose from the dead, he is, in essence, saying Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the king of the universe. He holds the whole world in his hands. Now, one more thing about the resurrection, and I put that there on the outline, Jesus' resurrection and ours. 
The apostles understand the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of believers to be one event. Now that may sound kind of strange to us because of the very large distance of time that is between them. But the apostles preach. In fact, you remember what Paul said? I, I put that there, right? But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. That means, my friends, that what Paul is saying is that there's one harvest. One harvest, but two parts to that harvest. There's one harvest. The first fruits is Jesus. He rose from the dead at the beginning of this harvest, so to speak. But then will come the full harvest, that after the first fruits rise from the dead, which is Jesus, then will come all the rest of the harvest, the full harvest, which is all believers, that after they die, they shall return to life again. The apostles, Peter, John, and Paul after them, see that as one harvest, as one event, that the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of believers are bound together. And if the one is true, then the other is true. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then believers are going to rise from the dead. And Paul sees those things. The apostles see that as one event. And that is why they say in verse 2, right, as we've already said, they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus. In Jesus, there is a resurrection hope for every believer. So this is the charge, right? This is the charge. It comes from different people with a different motive, with a different intent. But the charge is you people are preaching Resurrection in the name of Jesus. Resurrection in the name of Jesus. And that cannot be tolerated. It certainly can't be tolerated in the very shadow of the temple, which was the, which was the, the bastion, the, the symbol, right, of the Jewish religion. Well, then the apostles are dragged before the, the council. They are arrested, put in prison the next day, they are dragged before the council. And you see what's uh, in, in our verses here. It says that Annas, the high priest, was there, Caiaphas and John and Alexander. In other words, all the heavyweights, right? These are the big men. These are the leading men in the Jewish church at the time. Uh, you, you talk about being on the hot seat, right? This is being on the hot seat. This is being brought before the leading men of the Jewish religion. This is not a place where you want to be. And of course, Peter and the apostles are uneducated. They are untrained men. They've been trained by Jesus, but they've not been trained in the schools. They've not been trained in the, in the, the lawyer's art of the time. So they have no chance here. They're going to be crushed. Except for one thing. Children, one thing makes the difference. Listen. Because Peter stands... And in verse 8, we read, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't miss those words, people. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter of himself is just a man. He's nothing in himself. But my friends, when you take a person, and when God fills that person with the Holy Spirit, then David can kill Goliath. Then Peter can stand in front of this assembly, this court, and he has a courage that's not his own. He has a strength that's not his own. He has words that are not his own. And the Spirit gives him a power to stand there. And so it's so critical, especially in the book of Acts. Remember what I said when we started this series, that the book of Acts is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. 
That's really who's acting here. And here we have it explicitly. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he preaches to them that this man who was healed in chapter 3, which we considered last week, was healed in the name of Jesus. And then the wonder happens, my friends. The, 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 the roles reverse. The tables are turned. That's my point three. The tables are turned because the judge becomes the person on trial and the people on trial become the judge. What astounding words we read in verse 11. Verse 11. He, that is Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. Wow. Imagine those men, the leading men. Again, there are no higher people of more weight, of more significance and influence in the Jewish church than these men. And now Peter and John, these little trifling men with no training, no education, no weight at all in the community. The stone which you rejected, right? The stone which you can imagine the builders would pick up a stone, they would turn it over. Ah, this one's no good. It won't hold the weight. They throw it aside. And now Peter and John say, that stone that you threw aside, that you dismissed as unworthy to hold, to be a, 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 a stone of integrity that would hold the building, you threw it aside. But now God has said, that stone is going to be not just in the building. It's going to be the headstone of the corner. In other words, all the building will lean on that one stone. That's astonishing, isn't it? And it continues. It continues uh, because uh, in, in verse 13, uh, the, the, the men are amazed, right? You see that the, the uh, court there is astonished at the boldness that these men have and the words that they use. But then we come to the, to the response. The response that is, that is uh, put forward here. You see how the, the leaders, the council, confer with one another, astonished. But they're in such a quandary, aren't they? They have nothing that they can do. There stands in front of them this man who was healed by this miracle. You can't really argue with that, can they? So they're, they're, their mouths are shut, you might say. They have nothing to say in reply, it says in verse 14. And Peter. Peter, and of course I should include uh, with Peter, Peter and John, right? All of them together. After they're commanded not to speak any longer in the name of Jesus, verse 19. But Peter and John say, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you, rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Well, what an what a incredible event that must have been to see. You'd like to uh, almost to have been there to observe that astonishing event when these men are really silenced by Peter and John and the rest of the apostles. And God works a miracle there, doesn't he? By giving these men so much strength to stand strong in this time. Well, let me move then to my points of application here as we draw this sermon to a close. The first application is quenching the spirit. Quenching the spirit. 
My friends, this is not a, a happy application to make. But the chapter so obviously lends itself to this application that you really can't miss it. And the truth is, my friends, that oftentimes churches themselves quench the Spirit of God. And especially, I, I speak to my brothers who are in the, uh, in the consistory and the council with me today, but this applies to all of us. Because we have our order, don't we? We have our traditions. We have our, uh, the way that we do things, right? And we have to be so careful. And, and this chapter just, just preaches this to us this morning, doesn't it? That that order doesn't stand in the way of God's working. Now, I know that that order, that church order that is given us, is given to us with the very intent, right? With the very intent to advance the work of God, to protect the work of God from being corrupted and derailed, right, by, by false doctrine, by practices that contradict the teachings of the Word of God, that contradict the advancement of the gospel. Yes, that's true. But we know, my friends, that it's always the tendency of every ruling body, right? I think many of us have this complaint about our, our civil government, but it's certainly true in the church as well, that, that the tendency of all human uh, government and, and rule is to multiply and to increase their authority and to multiply rules upon rules, right? That is a tendency we must confront here in the church as well, that pretty soon we begin to, we begin to love our order so much that we begin to that the, the church order and the, and the traditions that we have, again, most of which are good and, and God-honoring, but they begin to stifle the work of God. And this chapter just screams at us, doesn't it? To be careful, to be cautious against this. Now, quenching the Spirit, that is a word that comes from the Apostle in the book of Thessalonians, the letter he wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And I'd like to, I'd like to, uh, to read that with you. Because it's exactly the situation that Paul is talking about there. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 19, you have this expression. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. And the very next verse then gives us a clue as to what the Apostle means by this. So verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. Verse 20, do not despise prophetic utterances. Now, prophetic utterances would have been in the early church that, uh, well, in the early church, God would often speak directly to people. He would make a direct revelation of himself to the people. Certain people, men, women. But it happened that they would receive a direct prophetic revelation from God himself. Now, those people had the privilege of sharing those in the church at the time. Now, they had to do it under certain circumstances. When they, when they shared those prophetic utterances, there had to be elders present, right? Because the elders had to oversee these things to make sure that, uh, well, you know how that is, that oftentimes we, um, you know, we can mix a little bit of ourselves with it, right? And maybe uh, they go off into error a little bit. So the elders, who always have the responsibility of ensuring the doctrinal truth of the church, had to sit in judgment on these things. If they were women, they had to cover their head to show their submission to their husbands. But they were allowed then to speak of these things in the church about what God had revealed to them directly. 
And now Paul says, do not quench the Spirit. In other words, don't forbid these prophetic utterances. And when people want to share these things in the church, they are to be allowed to do so. And it is wrong of you to forbid them from doing that. By doing that, you quench the Holy Spirit, says Paul. Now, what does that mean for us in our own time when we, we don't have these kinds of direct revelations to, to our minds from God as they did in the early church? Well, again, we can apply this in different ways, right? How, how exactly this works will vary from, from place to place. But certainly in our situation, my friends, we have to take the Apostle Paul's warning here very seriously. And recognize the fact that sometimes God works through his church. But sometimes God works apart from the church, my friends. That can be the disturbing to those who are in authority as they, as they try to take their responsibilities seriously to lead and to guide the church. But we have to recognize, and certainly this chapter in Acts chapter 4 preaches to us that God is sovereign in how he works. He raises up one person. He puts down another. And, and I'm very thankful for the church order that we have in the URC because I think the, our denomination has been very wise in this regard and has written a church order that is, uh, even uh, by their own admission, somewhat minimalistic. Right? They, they put order in place because God is a God of order, right? And Paul also says, let everything be done in order. That's important. But our church order protects that there are those times uh, when uh, the Spirit will work and people can uh, exercise the gifts and the ministry that God has called them to do and the church can come around them and support that. Now, of course, as always, the elders have the responsibility of making sure that the apostolic truth is preserved and, and, and kept. And in that case, where there is a deviation from that, the elders have the responsibility to come and to shut that down in a loving way, right? Hopefully in a way that tries to steer it back into a right direction, but they have that responsibility. But today, this morning, we see an example of the religious establishment trying to put down something that God himself was behind. And brother elders, brother elders, listen to me now. We don't ever want to be in the situation where someone says to us, I must obey God rather than men. That is not a place where we ever want to be. Now, I know that each of these situations has to be, has to be tried, uh, you know, on their own individual basis. But this is something that we have to keep in mind. And this chapter certainly brings this, uh, brings this to, our, to our attention. You know, in, the, in, in, the, uh, in our denomination, my friends, let me just give you an example of this. That if there was a young man or an older man here who wished to speak, to preach as he had opportunity. You know that that can happen, right? You don't have to go to seminary and be ordained to preach a sermon, right? If a person has that prophetic gift that God has given them to preach, you come under the oversight of the elders in our denomination, and individual churches then have, a, have a, uh, uh, the privilege of licensing a person to preach the gospel, whether in this pulpit or in, 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 a, in another ministry, be that, say, it could be like chaplaincy in a hospital. It could be some kind of prison ministry. It could even be sort of an itinerant ministry where you, you provide pulpit supply for churches on different occasions. This happens in the church. 
and these people receive a license to exhort, as it's called in our denomination. And I, I, I treasure that because, to me, that shows that we recognize that the Spirit of God is sovereign and he works in people and he raises them up, sometimes to be full-time pastors as, as myself, sometimes to be more itinerant, sometimes to, to I mean, the, the ministry that a person can have and carry forward can be an infinitely variety, dif- different variety of things, can't it? And we have to be careful not to stand in the way of that. I'd like to give you a story here from church history that is very interesting in this regard. But you know the man George Whitfield. I think that's a name you're familiar with. He was a man in the Church of England who God raised up with a deep, deep passion and heart for preaching the gospel. And he preached wherever he could and wherever he had opportunity. He was ordained in the Church of England. Uh, and because of his preaching and because of his emphasis on Calvinistic doctrines, on the, ne- the need for a new birth and regeneration, and his, uh, his call of the gospel, which he put forward with great power and with great eloquence, many of the Church of England churches closed their doors to him. So George Whitfield went out and he began to preach in the open air. He began to preach to thousands of people. Crowds of people would come, and God blessed his ministry abundantly. Don't ask me what kind of voice this man must have had, because he preached to thousands of people with no microphone, no amplification whatsoever. And I think probably you remember the story of when George Whitfield visited the 13 colonies, that Benjamin Franklin, being a very inquiring mind, wanted to see how far his voice would reach. And so he actually went to one of George Whitfield's sermons. He should have been listening to the sermon, but instead he was pacing off the, 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 the distance to see how far George Whitfield's voice would reach. Well, anyways, that's George Whitfield. Well, what happened is uh, George Whitfield went to Scotland because the Erskine brothers there, Ralph and Ebenezer Erskine, were Calvinistic preachers in the Reformed Presbyterian Church there in Scotland. And when they saw what Whitfield was doing, they were delighted. They were delighted, and they begged him to come to Scotland. Right now, so far, the story's good. I mean, these men had enough humility to recognize that God was working through this man. And so they begged him to come to Scotland and to preach the gospel in their churches. And so Whitfield came. Well, the Erskines wanted Whitfield to preach in their churches. The churches known at the time as as the Associate Presbytery Churches. They didn't want Whitfield to preach in the denomination that they had just split off from. And now the story gets ugly, doesn't it? Because Whitfield came and he went to one of their presbytery meetings and he said, I'm going to preach in every pulpit. In fact, Whitfield said, I will preach to the Pope of Rome if he will give me a place. And the the Presbyterians at that time uh, began to frown heavily. This is not what they were asking Whitfield to do. Their understanding was that Whitfield would come and preach in their churches, in the churches of their denomination, not in the other Presbyterian churches who they had some problems with. But of course, Whitfield knew no such church walls. He would preach the gospel to anyone who would hear. And so he went to these other churches. And now, like I said, the story gets somewhat ugly. Because one of the Presbyterian ministers... And this is deeply disturbing, my friends. His name was Adam Gibb. He was a good minister, a good, solid Presbyterian Calvinist pastor, one whom you would happily have preach in this very pulpit. 
And that's the, that's the painful thing. This man, Adam Gibb, wrote a book. He wrote a, more like a pamphlet, really. And this is the title. All you need to hear is the title. He wrote a pamphlet called A Warning Against Countenancing the Ministrations of Mr. George Whitfield. Wherein are shown that Mr. Whitfield is no minister of Jesus Christ. That his call and coming to Scotland are scandalous. And they invited him. That his practice is disorderly and fertile of disorder. That his whole doctrine and his success must be diabolical. So that people ought to avoid him from duty to God, to the church, to themselves, and to their fellow men. That's astonishing, isn't it? That a good minister would write such a, such a, such a piece against a man whom God was so obviously using to spread the gospel. And that's the fear that I have, my friends, and that's the danger I want to warn against in this first application. Be careful as a church that we don't quench the Spirit. And where the Spirit of God is working, support that work. Pray for that work. The Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Philippians. He says uh, in Philippians 1 and verse 15, he says, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth. Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. There's the heart of the apostle, my friends. Do you hear it this morning? Christ is proclaimed. And even though many of the preachers, some of the preachers of the gospel at that time, hated Paul, and were only trying to advance their own cause, they had wrong motives for preaching the gospel. Even there, Paul says, I rejoice because Christ is preached. That's, an, that's a striking statement, isn't it? That the Apostle Paul says that even here, where these people are advancing the cause of God, even though they're doing it from wrong motives, I step back and I praise God that Christ is being preached. Well, my friends, I leave that point and go on to my second point, the preaching of the resurrection. Next week is Easter, and we rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus. And my friends, Paul's gospel is centered around that resurrection. This is the gospel that Paul preaches. And it was striking to me as I was thinking about that this week, that Paul himself had such a, a striking, such a, uh, he had such a, uh, what's the word for it? Such a dramatic experience of conversion, didn't he? When he was on his way to Damascus, right? In the bright noon sun of Damascus, there shone the light of Jesus Christ down on him. He was struck off his horse, right? He was brought into the city of Damascus, where he, was, where he came to Christ, where he believed the gospel and was baptized. And yet, in spite of that dramatic experience, my friends, Paul's gospel is still so simple. So simple. Paul's gospel is that Jesus came, he died, and he rose again. And you must be joined to Jesus Christ. And that when you put faith, just simple trust 
in Jesus. That maybe it's easier even for a child to do than an adult. But that simple faith, that simple trust in Jesus, joins you to him. Joins you to Christ. It brings you a full justification. The process of sanctification begins. You receive the Holy Spirit. You are adopted into God's family. You are reconciled to God through the work of Jesus Christ. All these things happen when we are joined to Jesus Christ. And that's just the gospel. Paul doesn't preach that you need to have an experience like he had. No, on the contrary. Everywhere, Paul preaches the simple truth that when we are in Christ, we have all the benefits of the gospel. All the benefits of the gospel come to us as we are joined to Christ. Jesus himself, when he was on this earth, he just said, follow me. Any child can understand it. Follow me. And this morning, my friends, the preaching is still the same. Follow Jesus. Put your trust in him. Become a disciple of Christ. And whether you've been a Christian for many years or whether you've never been a Christian before, my friends, the gospel is the same. The gospel is the same. That on April 2, 2023, Jesus still says, follow me. Follow me. Put your trust in me. And then you have the hope of the resurrection. And this is just one of the blessings that come to us when we are in union with Christ. That we have this assured hope. And that's my third point. This assured future hope. That when we die, and when our body is laid to rest in the, in the grave, we have this certain hope that cannot deceive us. That we shall rise out of that grave again. Why? Because Jesus rose out of his grave. And our resurrection is tied to the resurrection of Jesus. My friends, there are, there are many of you here who are growing older. You feel your body weakening. You know that the time may be short, maybe just a few steps, and you come to your end. But it's not your end, is it? And all what you feel in your body can deceive you. It can lead you to think that it's the end. Because you feel so weak. Right? Your body begins to tremble. And perhaps there's even a great deal of fear and anxiety in your soul. Dear friend, dear friend, hear the gospel of Jesus this morning. That no matter what you may feel, that no matter how weak you may be, no matter what sickness might be going through your body even now, the gospel says, you shall rise again. You shall certainly rise again. And that as surely as Jesus rose from the dead, so surely shall you rise from the dead. So my friends, it's my happy privilege to preach what Peter and John preached so many years ago. That in Jesus, you have a certain hope of a resurrection from the dead. And I know that must be so meaningful to so many of you who know that your time on this earth must be short. But in Jesus, you have that hope of living forever. And may I say also to those of you who've lost loved ones, you've lost spouses, wives, or husbands in the past, maybe some have lost children, that they too shall live again. They too, if they were in Christ, shall live again. And you shall be happily reunited with them again in eternity never to be separated by death 
again. Because death is not allowed in that place. Oh, what a hope, my friends, what a strength there is for a trembling soul in our midst this morning that you can take hold of. You can find such a courage and such a strength in that, that you can look death in the face and you can say, Oh, death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that the preaching of the gospel would have been a source of strength for those in our midst who feel their bodies growing weaker and who know that their time on this earth cannot be long anymore. I pray for those, Lord, whose hearts still break when they think of loved ones who have passed away many years ago already, perhaps. And yet that hole is in their heart, that grief, that tear in their eye yet, when they think of their loved one. Oh God, I pray that the gospel which Peter and John preached so many years ago, the gospel which we may still preach this morning, oh, that it would strengthen that one, Lord, that it would give them new hope and new courage to face the day, to face that last enemy. Lord, every one of us must die. The old must die, but the young can die. But Lord, I pray that we would face it in Jesus. Oh, that precious name of Jesus. When we are in him, nothing can touch us. Not even death itself can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, bless us then this day. Lord, I pray for strength. I pray that I might be able also to speak again this evening and that you would bless our time together. And all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.